Hi, this is Reggie Greenwood, former Big East official, former supervisor for the Atlantic 10, the Ivy League, and the Patriot League, currently supervisor for the CIAA. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs podcast. Serve the game. You are listening to the Crown Refs podcast, the audio experience for basketball official officials. Serve the game. Thank you for listening to episode number 57 of the Crown Refs podcast. Our next guest is former 19-year Big East official Reggie Greenwood. Reggie worked the 2005 NCAA Final Four, and he was part of 12 straight NCAA tournaments. He retired in 2009 and stepped right into a leadership role, serving as the supervisor of officials for the Ivy and Patriot League. He held that from 2009 to 2019 and is currently the supervisor of officials for the CIAA Conference. In this interview, we talked about the concepts of post, pause, process. We talked about start, develop, finish, decide, and the rights of a legal defender. We spoke about primary and secondary coverage areas, and we'll start you off with how supervisors select their staff. If you enjoy this interview, please go share it with a fellow ref. Do me a favor. Have a tremendous rest of your day. We recently had Final Four official Bo Borowski on, who's also a college assigner. And I thought he gave us some great intel on how officiating coordinators make roster decisions and kind of like a behind the scenes perspective, which is very valuable for officials because we rarely get that kind of access. Just talk to me about your process, what it's like as an assigner, as you're evaluating, assessing, and ultimately hiring and firing. When I'm actually, um, you know, in, in the season and I'm looking at games, Okay, there are a number of factors that go into an evaluation of an official. Um, obviously, the, 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 the obvious parts are, is this person physically fit? Uh, do they uh, blend well with the crew? Do they get the higher percentage of their calls correct? Are they a good team player? Okay, now there are other factors that go into it. The, 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 we have video review okay so so that's part of it we also have a referee report that comes comes back to me the referee has to report back to me and tell me exactly how the game was conducted if there was issues with the referees that were under his uh, command that night if there was issues with the table with the with the um with the coaches um so so that's like two or three different aspects of evaluation of an official. Um, If there was uh, communication issues where one person made the call and the uh, the other two um, officials failed to come to that person and say, hey, um, that that rule was not adjudicated properly. We should have shot two shots and point of interruption. So those are the kinds of things. And what I try to instill in the referees is, look, if you're the referee in the game, I put you there for a reason. It's not a democracy where two out of three has to agree. You're there because you're going to take in all the information and use it to make the best possible uh, um, conclusion that you can on anything not specifically covered by the rule. Okay? So... It's not if I call a block, you can come back and say, no, that should be a charge. We're not doing that. But 
the, the, the things like when there's, um, you know, issues in the game that, that need to be, like, for instance, last second shot, should it count? Did it count? Um, what did the scorekeeper or the timer say? What did your fellow referee say? Did, was, it, was it released in time? Did it release, you know, those are the kinds of things. And the referee's got to make the decision, okay? So that's his role. He also has to fill out the role for you know technical fouls in the game. I got to have a report. So there's a lots of different information that comes in. The coaches they send in evaluations. Okay, so that's that's like three or four different factors already being utilized to uh, evaluate an official. There's the game report that the neutral observers send in. That's five. Um, there's the situational stuff that is the 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 play-by-play. Play. What happened? Coach calls me and says, hey, you know, this guy called 15 fouls against me. Well, you were behind by 15 points. You had to foul. <laughs> so you you use all the different tools to help you um, decide where the truth lies. You know, there, there, if you've got four and five or six things that coincide, the video, all of these things are telling you the same thing, then the one outlier is one that you can kind of dismiss and say, okay, this guy has an angst against this particular referee, and so I can weight him up or weight him down based on on all these other factors that are that are used to help me evaluate and potentially uh, retain a, a referee. Now, hiring referees is a little bit different story, obviously. In today's age, you you want to be proficient. You want people that know what they're doing out there. And in most cases, the only way you can find that out is at camps. Um, now, camps are not necessarily the be all, the end all, because you know a guy may be a great camp referee, but when the big bright lights are shining, uh, are, are they capable of doing the right thing in the game, no matter who's at home or who's away? One of the big philosophies and principles that we had in the Big East, and I'm really proud of that, is that we didn't care who won. We did not care who won. One year, it was like 56% of the visiting teams won. Well, you know, the home team coaches didn't particularly like that, but you know what? It indicated that we gave everybody a fair shake. You mentioned the Big East. Uh, in the last 20 years, a lot of colleges and universities have been playing musical chairs with conferences, right? It's almost tough to keep up with all the movement. Sure. It's, it's watered down some, and it's also beefed up others. But before any of this movement began, you had a juggernaut in the Big East. My question for you is, what was it like refereeing in the old Big East? <laughs> I, I was in there in the 90s, and we had, you know, P.J. Carlissimo, and we had, you know, um, uh, uh, Big John Thompson at Georgetown, and we had Calhoun, and we had... Bayheim and uh, you know, and, and a lot of times you don't necessarily like to call coaches' names, but these were great coaches. These were these were guys that were, uh, you know, in the business. And you know, Rick Barnes was at Providence. Um, um, it, it, every single night, it was it was a challenge, and you had to step on the court knowing full well that these guys are the king of of, of the of the crop out there. And, and you have to match that whole thing. When you go into Syracuse and there's 32,000 people screaming, it's so loud, your eardrums are vibrating 
um, you, your, your concentration and your focus has to be there, you know, and you have to know that if you make a call against any team and 15 seconds later, you got to go back and make that same call again, you got to have the courage to do it. And I think all of those great coaches back in the day, you know, um, they all recognize the strength of the referees in, in the Big East. And, and if you didn't have it, uh, you, you, you were going to have a, a hard night. So, and Art Highland was always very good at, at, at looking at people he thought would be, you know, very compatible with that league. And that league wasn't for everybody. Trust me, it was not. It was a hard, you know, you, you, had, to, you had to put your nose to the grindstone and really work hard for the, the entire time. And, and when you did, you came out of there with a really good feeling. You know, you, you knew you, you'd done a good job. I can only imagine. Uh, to get to the highest level of college basketball, which is working Final Four game, right? You obviously are a highly effective communicator. What tips and strategies do you have for improving our game management and communication with coaches? First of all, you have to be willing to, to um, communicate. Now, part of the problem is when you, when you open up dialogue, you have to expect dialogue to come back. And one of the biggest problems with referees nowadays is that they are, they're not very communicative in terms of knowing what to say and when to say it. Um, the biggest gripes that I get from coaches is about you know, communication and consistency. Those are the two things that coaches complain the most about. If you know you have completely not gotten the play right, then be man enough and big enough to stand up and say, you know what, coach, I didn't get that play right. And, and I'll tell you right now, there's no coach out there that would continue to belabor that point because you have admitted you're human. That's their favorite thing to hear, right? Oh, well, yeah, but they can't hear it like three or four times a game. <laughs> yeah, we get two a game, one per coach, no? Yeah, well, okay. But if they get together and compare notes, yeah, he told me the same thing. <laughs> so you want, to, you want to try to prevent that as much as possible. Let's talk about block charge places. Let's talk about them. Okay. And in order to understand how to get block charge plays correct. We're talking about ball handlers and defenders. This year in the NCAA, they actually came out with a ruling that said that in order to establish initial legal guarding position, you can have both feet on the floor facing opponent and you may be on the side of that opponent or any part of him, side, front, or back. Okay? So if you are initially with both feet on the floor facing your opponent, you may move to maintain that position. Okay, understanding that. We're talking about ball handlers now. They move to maintain. You can have one or both feet off the floor as you're moving when contact occurs. You can move laterally or backwards or obliquely away. That's three. Okay, you cannot move into or uh, or up or under an airborne player, okay? So now, if we start labeling all that, we're looking at maybe 10 or 12 things. 
okay? You can raise vertically from the floor to the ceiling, okay? And you're legal. You can turn in your own orbit to protect yourself. And if contact occurs in those, those situations, and it occurs typically in the torso, which would include the shoulder, then by definition, that contact by the offensive player, and you've done all of those things legal, it cannot be a defensive foul. It must be an offensive foul. That's, that's roughly 10, 12 things that I just laid out. All right? Now, that's one-on-one, -on -one, primary defender, and primary ball handler. All right? Now, the second part of that is the secondary defender. The first thing you have to recognize as a secondary defender, you need all of those 12 things in order to even start talking about secondary defender. So you're starting off at 12, okay? Typically, that's the lead's call. That's 13, all right? So when you talk about that, now you've got to talk about what else is going on, okay? Secondary defender may not move um, uh let me take that back. He may move out of the restricted area, establish a legal guard position, and subsequently retreat back into it. Okay? And he's legal. He cannot be, by definition, with a foot in, on, or over the restricted area when contact occurs. Um, um, he can he can literally be in the restricted area and raise up straight to block a shot. He also can literally raise up with both hands up in the air to potentially block the shot. If the offensive player leads with a, a an elbow or a knee in those situations, then it would be a, a, an offensive foul, okay? Um, you cannot move when the guy gets airborne, turning your torso from A to B. And when I'm saying A to B, that means you just kind of turn, but you stay grounded, okay? You cannot be grounded in the restricted area at all. If you just had to that you for a second, sorry about that last play. Just compare that A to B movement versus mm -hmm bracing for impact and being legal. Right. Well, bracing for impact means you can, you do a complete turn where you are not necessarily moving um, where you are not legal. In, in, in the in initial uh, legal guarded position, you may turn to protect yourself. That means most of the contact is going to be on your backside. In this case, if you turn and you catch him with the shoulder facing his torso, okay, you're turning into him. That is not legal. That's not legal in the NBA either. Okay, so you can't do that. All right, and so the A to B is like moving your torso to match the movement of the offensive player. You see, the offensive player may jump sideways, and in order to stay in front of him, you have to turn. Um, that's not legal as a secondary defender. All right. So All right. bracing for impact, we're pretty much our body is moving kind of backwards. Exactly. In most cases, when you're bracing for impact, you're standing stationary and static, and your arms are folded across your chest or something like that to, to, to take and absorb the hit. Okay? But when you turn, you have, you have basically um, ruined the initial position that was legal. All right. Um, 
the lead official cannot follow the ball in terms of a pass out to the corner and then there's a crash right there in front of them okay because the lead official as we said earlier is responsible for the secondary defender we have to trust that the outside officials are going to take the pass while we take the crash okay and then um to add to that you must be aware of potential double whistles okay so when you're aware of the double whistles and everybody knows that that's a secondary defender it's in your primary coverage area as a lead official all double whistles on secondary defenders should be the primary responsibility of the lead official but we also have to have awareness of both the, the center official and the trail official in case the lead official miss, messes up and says the person that we're saying was in the restricted area and we're calling it a block may be indeed outside of the restricted area and therefore it should be a charge. So when you add all of that up, that's roughly 26 items on block charges. And that means that you really have to process it going through just like I just described. Initially, both feet on the floor facing the opponent can move to maintain, can have one or both feet on the floor, can move laterally, obliquely away, may never move up and under an, air, an airborne player, um, can turn his own over to protect himself, can, can raise up straight vertically from the floor to the ceiling, uh, he can retreat backwards, and if contact occurs, occurs in the torso, it must be a charge. So we're talking about block charge plays. Can I map out a scenario for you? Sure. So uh, A1 and A2 are on a fast break. B1 is the defender. Initially, B1 is um, a secondary defender, correct? On a fast break, if it's a one-on-one, it's any offsetting number of uh, uh, players. If it's three-on-two, two-on-three, um, if they're one-on-one, uh, -on -one, then he is not a secondary defender. He, he can establish a legal guarding position 30 feet away from that offensive player. So I was going to say, so A1 and, and A2 are on a fast break. B1 is initially um, a secondary defender, right? A1 okay. continues yep. to drive to the basket. B1 establishes initial legal guarding position, let's say, at the three-point line. He continues to back up, back up, back up. Crash occurs in the restricted arc. What there, do you have? There is no restricted area play because he legally established on that particular player uh, outside of the restricted area. So therefore, it is a, a simple block charge play. I agree with you there. So we would have a charge. But I don't remember ever seeing that play happen live where an official, we have a crash in the arc and an official just goes charge and then no one says anything. You know, because initially the coach is just probably going to scream that he was in the arc as well, right? You know, what, you know the play I'm talking about. I've never seen it. Well, it, 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 it never, it, it doesn't really happen that way most of the time because what happens on a three-on-two or two-on-one break, the, the defender has to decide, who am I going to guard? And he's backing up, he's backing up and backing up. And most of the time, he's going to back up to where he's in the restricted area. And when contact occurs and he's in the restricted area, he never legally guarded the, the, the person with the ball, then it's a block. 
That's a good point that you're giving us that scenario. And, and a lot of times, too, if B1 is guarding A1 tightly and they're on a fast break, then A2 is open. Exactly. And so he's got to make a decision. Who am I going to guard? Gotcha. Reggie, was going to the NBA ever a thought for you? No, because it's funny you ask that. It, it, it was in the, it, I think it's in the back of every referee's mind that if there's an opportunity to go to the NBA, um, could you and would you take it? Um, for me, I was working in, in federal government, in the, um, the Department of Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and I was in information technology, and I was you know, a, a manager, and I was making a pretty decent salary. And in order to go to the NBA, you know, there's there's a lot of different, you know, strictures that they put on you um, that you know, even though the money is good, it's not like the, the, the longevity and the, um, the security that you have with your, and I hate to say this, my good government job, but that's what it was. And uh, so for me, the, the idea of going to the NBA never really um, went beyond trying to do the best I could uh, at the collegiate level. And, and I had a great career in, 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 in college basketball and, and met a lot of good people. Um, and the looking at the NBA versus the college, neither are, are, are better than the other. They're, 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 they're just different. And so my my preference was always the college game. And so I, I stuck with that and tried to be the best I could with that. Now, how'd you balance being a big time division one official with your full time job? Were you still employed? I was still employed. Yeah. And, and I worked I worked both. I worked the uh, college basketball as well as the, the, my federal government job when I um, I had a flexible schedule. And when I wasn't doing college basketball, I was at work and I was at work uh, a lot. <laughs> and, you know, and so I, I, I ended up, um, um, you know, coming in on days that nobody else was there. Um, I, I, you know, I'd work late, come in early on days that I didn't have games. So I, I really balanced the, the, um, the time away from work. And, and for the most part, when I went to do my games, I made sure that I was back at my desk by nine o'clock or nine thirty the next morning. So, so it it it, um, it 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 allowed me to to be be a professional uh, at my job as well as do a good job with the basketball. But I knew I had to catch the first thing going out of the airport first thing in the morning, six o'clock, five thirty. I was on the airplane going back to. Baltimore, DCA, uh, to get back to work. Over the course of your long career, were there any difficult or odd situations or plays that stick out to you still to this day? Oh my God, yes. They're, they're um, you know, as a supervisor, we had a play with with about um, I think it was like seven point nine seconds to go. And there was a free throw taken, and in the free throw, the the ball goes through the basket, but one player shoves another one, um, and they get all tangled up, and it ends up being a, a dead ball contact technical foul. The team that was shooting the free throws were down by three, and so being down by three, 
Now we got a dead ball contact technical with somebody shooting free throws. Guess what? He gets to shoot another free throw, and they get to shoot two free throws for the technical foul and the ball. Okay? On the inbounds play, we have uh, the team now that was ahead by three is now down by one. And now they got a foul. And so when they try to foul this guy, they couldn't catch up to him and foul him. So they fouled him in the act of shooting for a three-point shot. Well, when they did that, now he's shooting three on top of the four that they already shot. The coach goes crazy. Um, he gets a technical foul. Now it's two more free throws. He doesn't um, leave the court, and, and now he gets ejected. So that's two more free throws. So in a span of, of less than two seconds, we shoot 11 free throws. Um, <laughs> That to, I've never seen that happen before. That's a wild seven seconds. You guys must have had quite a post game. Uh, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, we go back a ways to uh, when I was first supervisor for the uh, Atlantic Ten, and we had the uh, dramatic uh, Cincinnati and Xavier fight. That was um, that was gut wrenching. Um, and like you said, the post game was a little bit intense, um, and you know several players got suspended. Uh, teams uh, couldn't finish the game. It was, and that was with only with about um, I think it was like nine seconds left to go in the game, and the game was you know postponed or suspended uh, because of the big fight. Um, so yeah, there's there's been times when you know there's been some some gut-wrenching uh, situations that you had to deal with. Um, but there have been fun times, too. I mean, you know, you go out there and you you know you worked a good game. I worked a game one time at Seton Hall in Syracuse, and the two star point guards wanted to go at each other, and I just ran in there and pushed them both apart and just said, you're not going to mess up my game, you know. And I, I, at the end of the year, um, the supervisor uh, told me that because you were very good with that situation, you know, that you had an opportunity to work the Big East Championship. You know, it was UConn and um, and, uh, and St. John's. So um, that was, uh, that was, those were some good times too. What was that, 99? Yeah, it actually was. I remember that was St. John's uh, with Ron Artest, so. Yep, it certainly was. <laughs> yep, that was a that was a it was a great situation to be involved in, and uh, and like I said, all those years of working in the uh, in the Big East and in the uh, the tournament there at Madison Square Garden, those were great times. You know, you just you just you know you talk about the mecca of um, of basketball. There's a there's there's a facility. That you can always, you know, you know, say to yourself, "Man, that was that was great," but then there's other meccas of basketball too, like the, uh, like the Palestra, you know, having a Penn and Princeton championship um, in the Palestra, and the place is mobbed, and you know, the game is going down to the last shot, and the guy makes it, and you you've got to fight your way off the floor. So yeah, they're 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 good times and they're memories that you know that I will always cherish, you know, with this stuff and and I think that's that's what keeps you going. 
these atmospheres you're describing sound electric. How are you able to control your nerves under these spotlights? If you focus on your game, focus on what you're supposed to be doing and not get caught up in the, in the, uh, in the hoopla and the, the, the surroundings and, and, and all the other entrapments, um, then, then you, can, you can do your job. I remember I was in New Orleans one time and it was, um, it was uh, Kansas with pageant in Kentucky and it was a great game and they went into um, double overtime. So in, in, in one of the sequences, I was on the uh, end line with, with uh, pageant and I, said, I, said, I looked over to him. I said, man, this is a great game. I just wonder what it looks like up in the stands. He looked at me and he kind of said, eh, no, I'd rather be right here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it dawned on me right then, you know, yeah, I, you got to roll the plate. Let's, let's get this thing done, you know. He gave you, uh, he gave you the perspective you needed in that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to go back to, I know you, we were talking about a signing before, what advice would you have now that the landscape of college basketball for referees has changed over the last couple of years with the consortium and the alliance, what advice would you have for a younger official looking to move up the ladder? First of all, you've got to be very proficient at your craft. And that means working the, the division twos and threes um, to perfection so that you can now go into these situations where you're trying out at these different uh, alliances or consortium type camps. Um, that's where you know you're going to be seen, and that's where you're going to be judged. And so, and I've always had this this philosophy is that when you go into those situations, you must be the best that you can be. You have to, you know, exude the kind of confidence that let people know that you know what you're doing and that they can't do without you. And 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 the whole idea about being the best in the camp. Now, you don't want to be out there trying to compare yourself to anybody. You want to be, you know, as good a referee as you can possibly be. And the, the, the people that are going to make those decisions, they're going to make those decisions. All right. I'm not a proponent of all the other isms, the nepotism, the cronyisms. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of that. So if you're going to put, you know, that kind of pressure on yourself to say, you know, I'm better than this guy, or, you know, uh, uh, can you speak for me to this supervisor? For and you've, got to, you've got to understand that you've got to go out there and you've got to show them that you're ready to take on the responsibilities and duties at the next level. I like that you said, you know, master each level. I have a lot of officials that, that reach out to me. I, I spoke to a female official today, and she's, you know, looking to one day go to the NBA, but she's been only refereeing one year. And she's feeling all, all um, you know, insecure maybe about her journey and if she's on the right path. And I said, just focus on the process. You're a first-year official. Just go out and work as many games as you can and be a great high school ref. And, and people have to do a number of things. Number one, you, you have to set goals, okay? And those goals have to be defined. Uh, Short-term goals. You know, what am I going to do in the next two three years. Medium range. What am I going to do after the three or the four years? And then long term. And, and now to take it a, a step further, those goals have to be um, 
realistic. They can't be unrealistic. Am I going to go to the Final Four next year? Or am I working the ACC? No. So reevaluate your goals. And then when you reassess them, then reset your goals when you achieve a certain milestone. That's, that's a philosophy that I don't think a lot of these young referees have. What's an example of you resetting a goal where you accomplished it and then now it's time to make new ones? When I first started going to ACC camp, okay, I was doing high school basketball. And that first year, I went, I, I thought I was going to the, you know, the ACC or the other, or any of those other, but I, I'm doing high school basketball. I'm not even division two or three yet, but I realized then that that was not realistic for me. But what I did realize was that I could take what I learned from that camp and apply it to the best of my abilities at the high school level. When I came back that next season, I worked the state championships. I worked the DC inner high championships. I worked the DC Catholic league championships and I worked the McDonald's classic. Now, did I reset my goals and, and objectives? Yes. Did I achieve the short-term goals? Yes. Now, what's next? So I got to go and I got to get in Division Two and Three. So I went back to camp. Well, guess what? I got into Division Twos and Threes, and 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 also got into the the Colonial and the um, Atlantic Ten. So as you start to progress, you reset your goals. Now I want to get in the ACC and the Big East. I did. And so building on each one of those milestones allowed me to, to realize that you're not always going to get what you want out of this whole process. Okay. And, and ultimately, you've got to realize that um, everybody's not going to be excited about you. <laughs> so... You know, you keep yourself humble and you and you appreciate what you do get, but you work hard to get to the next one. Uh, I worked a number of years in the Big East, and it took me a while to crack the upper echelon in the Big East. But think about it. We had superstars in the Big East, the Burrs, the Higgins, um, the Sylvester's, the Limbos, uh, Mickey Crowley. I mean, you, you had, you had uh, superstars there. And so you're not going to crack that. You've got to be patient. You've got to understand that your time will come. Patience is big, right? Patience is a virtue. Yeah, I know. I know as officials, like we first couple of years coming up, we want it all, you know. And you think you can get it all. You know, you're, you're full of vinegar and that other thing. And, and it doesn't necessarily, you know. We're going to keep that. That's not, that's my uh, my nephew. He's calling me to wish me a happy birthday. Today's your birthday. Yeah. yeah. Happy birthday, man. Yeah, I thank you. Appreciate you taking the time on your birthday. It's awesome. No, that's okay. I mean, this is this is what I love to do, you know, and I could I could you know me, I could talk about basketball all day long, all night long. Me too. I could talk about it, I could write about it, I could produce content about it all day long, you know. This is this is like one, just one aspect for me, but it, it all works hand in hand.
Crown Ref still has a coupon code available at refereestore.com. This promotion is good for 10% off your next order. The refereestore.com has all of your officiating uniform needs. Just enter coupon code BASKETBALL10 at checkout to get your discount. They offer free exchanges and free returns and $5 flat rate shipping. We know that being a referee is not just a job, it's a lifestyle. That's why we make it easy for you to find the right pants, jackets, and accessories for your games. Log on to refereestore.com, enter BASKETBALL10 at checkout to save today. So I had mentioned earlier I had the pleasure to attend your camp for two years in a row in, in 2017 and 18. And the biggest takeaway for me was your famous Friday teaching session. Um, for those that have been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those who have not, let me give you a little t- context. You check in at 7 a.m. on Friday morning and you're in the classroom for the entire day. There's no games. And, um, but the good thing about that is you fill the entire day with pure content. That is just eye-opening and super valuable for the official looking to break through. So I kind of had the idea to recreate that Friday camp session on the Crown Refs podcast so it could be saved, stored, and replayed in perpetuity. So I'm excited to give you this platform. Just want you to hit on some of your main points from that, that camp Friday. It, it started out basically um, at the beginning of the day where we would talk about not only the basic principles of officiating, um, where we where we lay out the uh, uh, specific areas of coverage, um, and that includes the um, when you're in your primary coverage areas, laying out the the the, uh, the the manual that shows you know the mechanics manual that shows everybody where you're supposed to go. Okay, and what what you are, how you're supposed to get there, and understanding the concepts of um, when you are the, for instance, the 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 lead official. How do you establish your positions in the lead? How do you get there? Um, where is the initial starting point? Once you get to your initial starting point, what are you looking at? Um, same thing with the center official. Same thing with the with the trail official, and that's even to the point of laying out what table side, what bench side, what, what what's the significance of those descriptions when you look at them in the uh, mechanics manual? How how the descriptions help you to understand if your table side or if your strong side does that strong side mean ball side and understanding the difference between the two and understanding that when later on we talk about what goes on on either side of the floor and how the movements are supposed to put you in positions to referee then you understand when we talk strong side that means you need to get on the side of the ball and we're talking about uh, the strong side being where the um, where the 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 um, the lead referee is okay it doesn't necessarily mean the ball is there it means the ball could be somewhere else but strong side means we have representation on that side of the floor by both the lead and the trail officials okay and so understanding these descriptors understanding how um, these definitions help you to understand when you are in these positions what are you supposed to be doing from there we look at ball movement we look at where the shots are going to be taken from and when those shots are taken from certain areas what is your responsibilities now when we lay out the responsibilities we're actually talking about at least a number of different responsibilities when you are in your primary coverage area 
and we, we talk about your primary responsibility. Obviously, that means you are in your primary when you are looking at what's going on directly in front of you. What is going on in front of you? That, and especially if the ball is in your area, okay? And that primary responsibility could be a number of things in terms of where the ball is, where the defender is, what your movement is gonna be in order to get to uh, a good place where you can see between players. Anytime a player comes and stands in front of you, you can't see, you need to move. There are too many times when people are talking about having um, um, this, this static position where you just get someplace and stand. And it, it, these the, the players are moving, the ball is moving, you need to move. No, no position is a standard position where you can just stand there and referee because ultimately somebody's going to walk in front of you and you're going to get cut off in terms of your angle and you won't be able to referee. So when you look at your primary responsibilities, you also have what's called secondary responsibilities in your primary coverage areas. Secondary responsibilities could be when the ball is released on a shot. Uh, all right, you have secondary responsibility for basketball interference goaltending. You have um, you have the responsibility of once that's all done, anything that's going on up top. Your your and I use a, 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 a scientific term, tertiary which means your number three position or responsibility. That responsibility is when that ball now comes off the rim, where do you need to be? And we've been talking about how you can move to improve. Shots taken, both the center and the trail official needs to take a step down, okay? So, and, and clearly when you, when you add all that up together, why are you taking a step down? When you look at the shot percentages, in both high school and college. College is a little bit better than high school, but when you figure there's anywhere from 33 to 38% of the shots made, um, then that means the rest of them are not gonna be made. And so there's gonna be a rebound and you need to be in a position instead of being going backwards on your heels, you need to be going forward to get good angles. And that's your, your, your tertiary. And then there's the last one, which is, you know, quaternary, number four. Wow, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, never heard of that one. But that's number four. And number four is the transition. If you work yourself to the middle of the day on the floor and you try to get basket in France, goaltending, rebounded, you've, you're looking at the backs of players. And then ultimately on your fourth responsibility, if there's a transition, you're going to get run over. So, so you need to tie, you know, again, understand how this game is played, where you need to be, and what your duties and responsibilities are when you're in certain positions on the floor. All right. So that's that's in a nutshell the, the first segment of what we do at, at the camp: laying out these positions, laying out the coverages, laying out the movements, laying out the duties and responsibilities. From from there. We, we, we move into um, post-play where we talk about all the different things legally by the rule that post-defenders can do, how they get there, how they set up, um, what, what is the responsibility of the primary person responsible for post-position, which is the lead official, okay? So we lay all those things out so people can, and we, and we, we 
augment and buttress all of that with stills or, or photographs of how players come together, how they get locked up, and 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 we we also make sure that we don't get ball watching where we miss the first activity that goes on in the post. So and then from there, I mean, we we go into a, a number of other routines when it when it when it comes to talking about the game itself. We look at video, we look at plays, and we dissect the plays. We 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 freeze the play. Okay, now give me your interpretation of this particular call. And we go around the room and we have people, you know, responding to it. And then we play the whole thing to its completion without giving up what we think is the right call. And so by the time we get to the end of the play, and now we have all the explanations of what the rules are concerning that particular play, whether it's block charge plays, whether it's uh, basket affairs, goaltending, all of those different things. Um, then we, we have an opportunity now for the participation of the class to say, okay, tell me what you think this call should be. And, you know, and we get like three, four, five different you know, interpretations. We play it all the way through. So now you can see that things complete. And now we can decide whether what the official call on that particular play was right or wrong. And and then we buttress it by rule. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell how we lay out the, the first the the, the the day in terms of the, the teaching and training. Now we have we have some of the more veteran referees that were um, you know, joining me there, and they could, they would give their, you know, their understanding and ideas about um, plays that happened to them. I use that. I mean, it's very similar to what uh, J.D. Collins uses in uh, in the NCAA, where you take the video and you look at the plays and you try to dissect and diagram where people should be, what they should be doing, and whether the play was called correctly or incorrectly. And that's uh, that's that's in, in a nutshell what the day is is pretty much like. By the time we get to five o'clock in the evening, um, it's um, it, it's a, it's a long day. But everybody's engaged. Everybody is um, aware. Not only of, of you know when I was a supervisor for the Ivy League and the Patriot League, they were aware of the rules and mechanics. But they were also aware of the specific things that that I as a, as a supervisor what I'm looking for. So they, they really get a good understanding. And I don't necessarily call my, my training day um, a, or my camp as a, a tryout camp. I, 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 I kind of don't like those terms. But what I do is say, this is a teaching, training, and opportunity camp. And these, these things all, all flow from being committed, these 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 guys that come to these camps, they be committed to to absorbing all this stuff and then going out there and doing it. We put them in very competitive situations. We were running the camp with uh, the Hoop Group Team Elite and some of the best programs on the East Coast: uh, M Hotel, Lincoln Outer New York, uh, Dematha in D.C., um, Boys and Girls, uh, Patterson Catholic, St. Anthony's when they were around. Um, these are some elite programs with. Um, very talented players. And so uh, if you wanted to learn how to referee um, and you came to my camp, 
you were getting not only the educational part of it, but you were getting the vocational part by being out there on the floor with some very talented players. Absolutely. Um, and one thing that stood out that I have in my notes, you mentioned, and this really helped me slow down my play calling and just my overall speed was post-pause process, the, the three Ps. I thought that was great. And, and just to elaborate on that, you know, when you're in a hurry I and mean, you're refereeing your games, okay, and you, um, you, you react to, and a lot of us, we react to what we see, okay? But the game has gotten to a point now where we have to be able to do the things that are going to allow us to be accurate in our calls. Number one, the first one, P, post. That is a stickler for the NCAA uh, Mechanics Committee. I served on the, uh, on the committee for like three years. And that was something that, that J.D. Collins and the whole committee was adamant about, is posting a foul or posting a violation, you know, where you put your fist in the air first. Too many times we see people don't stop the clock, don't do any of that stuff, and they point. Well, that leads us to the next one, which is the pause. Okay, and the pause means you give yourself once you post it, you pause to absorb what else is going on. For instance, if if um, if, if, uh, if there's a, an area where there's dual coverage and potentially there's going to be a double whistle because of the dual coverage in areas, two people could be looking at the same thing. So if you post and now you pause, now you can go to the third P, which is process. Okay, and when you process it, it means, okay, is this my primary call? Is that someone else's primary coverage area? If it is, and I have a delayed whistle, then fine. If he doesn't have a whistle, now I've, uh, I've been aware of the post-pause process where now I can actually put, which is the fourth P, put air in the whistle, okay? And now I can take the call. So. That's, that's what the post-pause, and what it does for you, it, it gives you an opportunity to slow down your reactionary whistle. It also allows for you not to have the double whistles where you are having one call and your partner is having a completely different call, okay? And now you have a conflict, and the conflict almost always is a blarge. And for those that don't understand a blarge, I got a block, you got a charge, and now we have to charge both players with a foul. That's unacceptable because we didn't post, pause, or process. And Joey Crawford, when I just had him on, he was talking about double whistles, saying even on the NBA level, there's way too many double whistles. And, and, and there's going to be times when you're going to have double whistles. And I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't say they're inherently bad, but you've got to give the first guy who is primary on that play. We talk about primary coverage areas. If he's primary on that play and you have a whistle, your cadence whistle has to be such that you allow him, that person, to look at the play. He's in the best possible position. Let him decide what he wants to do with it. And, and if there's a double whistle and it's not your primary, Put your hand down and get out of the play. I know I had heard the the phrase start, develop, finish before, but I had never heard the fourth layer until I came to your camp, which is decide. Just talk to me about start, develop, finish, decide. 
Very similar to post pause and process, but start, develop, and finish is you really want to see a play. And, and when the play starts, you have to be in the best possible position to referee that play as it starts. When it develops, you, you now understand if that play is going towards somebody else or it's turning away from you where you really don't know what's going on on the other side, okay? When it finishes, where is this play? Did I see the entire play through its whole process? And now the decision. Is it something I need to blow a whistle on? And it has to be in that process. Start, develop, finish, decide. If it's cadence like that, then you have a great opportunity to know all of the nuances of that call and make it right. If you get it out of sequence, you know, start, develop, or start, finish, it's too quick. If you go start, develop, finish, now there's a pause. Now you decide it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Okay. So you have to have that, that type of cadence to allow yourself to see the play, let it start, let it develop, let it finish, and now you decide. And when you decide, you can bet. And we in the Big East used to have a uh, philosophy is when you blow your whistle, you must be right. Must be right. Now, that sounds kind of strange, but if you give yourself the post-pause process, start, develop, finish, decide, 99.9% .9 of the time, you're going to be right when you blow the whistle. We look at statistics from the NCAA and the NCAA tournament, and the statistics have pretty much pointed to when officials blow their whistle, especially at that level, they're 94% correct okay they're correct when they blow the whistle because they've seen that play they know and they understand the play where they fall into trouble and where their percentages for correctness go uh, awry is when they have no calls and let's say out of the six percent that's that's left over uh three percent of those are no calls that were correct okay so now that 90 94 goes up to like 97. That's pretty good. But let's say they don't, they're not correct. That 94 goes down to 91, 90, etc. And that's where you start seeing the, the drop off when you people don't blow their whistle and they're not correct. So the discipline that has to be applied by referees is looking at the plays that are no calls are those no calls correct? And that's that's a that's a tough challenge. There are some games where you got a no call and that no call is appropriate because it doesn't fit that game or it doesn't fit that situation. So again, looking at statistics, we have been in terms of higher level refereeing, we have been at the 90, 93, 94 percentile for a number of years, which is good which means that the basic level referee at the highest level is, is pretty proficient. They know what they're doing. So, I'm just trying to understand this stat a little better. Now, we say they're at 94% when they blow the whistle. But mm -hmm. half the time, they either have a no call or a call. So is that only speaking on 50% of their plays, overall plays? 
Yes, because, I mean, when you look at the extra 6% between 94 and 100, okay, and there are times when a no-call is correct in that situation. And where it's not appropriate is where you have a no-call and you just didn't blow the whistle, okay? And that can, can lower your overall correct percentages. And that's where that's where the game is now. I think uh, in a lot of the um, in the NBA in the uh, in major college conferences, there are people charting statistically your your calls, um, and these people um, are aware of what the rule is, what the um, ramifications of a call that is missed is, and and it's really. Um, it, put, it puts a lot of pressure on the referees to, 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 to get plays right. Sometimes it puts pressure on them to blow the whistle on no calls or, or non-calls uh, when they shouldn't. And that, that also will lower your percentage. Just want to take a quick 30-second time out to tell the audience about the Crown Refs Team Store, which is now available online, produced by Point Three Basketball. We currently have the short-sleeve hoodie, the Crown Refs backpack, a fadeaway long-sleeve, a graphic t-shirt, a hustle short-sleeve shirt, and dry-woven training shorts. We offer them in black, white, and gray. If you've gotten any value at all from the Crown Refs content or the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you supported the brand. You can go to crownrefs.com backslash shop. Now, back to the podcast. In this segment, Reggie talks about his humble beginnings, who impacted him along the way, and how he blossomed into an NCAA Final Four official. It all started out, and I think for a lot of us, it started out with um, an interest in the sport itself, in playing the game. And I used to go to the gym a lot, and... um, and I worked in, at Dulles Airport, and I was an air traffic controller. And this one fella in Leesburg, Virginia, had um, a, a recreational league. And he worked at Dulles with me. And he said, you know what? You would be great to, um, you know, do some refereeing. I'm like, refereeing? I still want to play, <laughs> you know? And um, so he said, no, no, just come out on, you know, and, and before you go to work on a Saturday or a Sunday, and uh, do recreational leagues, and you know you get five dollars a day, a game rather. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. So I, I did it, but then I realized um, I liked it, and it had a lot of um, similarities to air traffic control, where you do, on your signals. Yeah, you, well, not only signals, but you you've got to have great command of rules because you're you're looking at. Uh, dealing with uh, airplanes with hundreds of people's lives on them, so you have to know the know the rules of the game, the rules of the air, and be able to apply them instantly. And so that that to me seemed very much reminiscent of of officiating. Um, so I, I you know after that one year doing that, I decided to go and join the local high school association and board twelve IAABO, which is the International Association of Approved Basketball Officials in Washington D.C. And Jay Dallas Shirley, that's probably a name not many people know, was the, sec- the, um, the, the rules interpreter for that board. Jay Dallas is, um, is, is, was well-known. He was in NBA circles. He was uh, very, um, very rigid in terms of knowing and understanding the rules. It was very difficult. If you didn't score 
a 96 on your test, you didn't work high school basketball. So understanding the rules was, was paramount when I first got started. And, and so from there, you know, the, the excellent basketball in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, it, uh, it allowed me to, to, to grow. Um, obviously, uh, I, years ago, I, I went to a number of camps and, um, and it started out with the, um, you know, um, the ACC Colonial with Fred Barricat and, and uh, Dan Woolrich and so forth. And from there, you know, I got noticed and got hired, you know, in, in the late 80s, in the 87, 88, in the Atlantic 10, the Colonial, and then in 88, 89, I got picked up in the ACC, and then in 90, in the, in the Big East. So it was, it was kind of a, um, a trajectory that, um, you know, that I, I felt really helped me understand where I was in the game of officiating, but also it, it, those, those major conferences um, you had to have something on the ball to be be a part of that. So, so that's that's kind of how I got started, and you know the rest is, is history. Obviously, I worked a lot of Division twos and threes, you know, to propel myself to be, you know, in a position to work in the ACC and the Big East and and, and the Big Ten and you know and, and the Atlantic Ten and the Ivy League and the Patriot League and the the America East and, you know, the, the colonial, the big South. I mean, you could go on and on and on, but, but a lot of it too came from the CIAA, which is the historical black conferences in, uh, in Virginia and in, in North Carolina. And, uh, that was some very, very, very competitive basketball. And, you know, you, you cut your teeth on that and you, you're going to be a pretty decent referee. You said you worked a couple years uh, at the lower level, Division Three and Division Two. How long um, were you working in those divisions before you got your crack at D1? Not long, because when I started in, in, in collegiate Division Two in 1984, um, in 1985, 86, um, I was in uh, the ODAC and, you know, some other, um, you know, Division Twos and Threes. And then... And I actually worked my way up after about two years uh, to the Division Three uh, championships, as well as uh, the ODAC championship down in uh, in Lexington, Virginia. So it, it was a fast trajectory for me, uh, which was, you know, it, it, it whet your appetite. It certainly made you want more. Mm-hmm. And what about when you were a Division One official? How long until you got your first NCAA tournament game? That took a little bit of time. Yeah, I, I got a, I got my first NCAA tournament in nineteen, I think it was ninety six, and that's that's after being you know in for about eight or eight, seven or eight years uh, in Division One, but but uh, I was I was working uh, from nineteen ninety through uh, two thousand and nine in the Big East. And every single year, 19 years straight, I worked a Big East tournament. So, so I, that's that's a, a proud undertaking of mine, and I really am, you know, proud of that 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 feat. I know you worked the 2005 NCAA Final Four game with uh, North Carolina versus Michigan State. T- take me through that game. That game was an interesting game because as it, as it starts out, you know, that's my first Final Final Four uh, uh, semifinal game or. Um, and you know, two teams that that I have seen 
you know, quite often anyway, because I worked in the Big Ten and I worked in the uh, ACC. And, um, and, and, and Roy Williams, who, was, um, who had been at Kansas, now at, uh, at North Carolina, and you had guys like May and McCants and some others, and it was, it was a very exciting game. Um, I, I remember the, um, at halftime, uh, Carolina was down like uh, by seven, eight, nine points. And, um, and Roy wasn't very happy at that point. But, um, but the game you know, kind of turned around in the second half and they kind of um, took control of the game and, and, um, and ultimately won. And then, yes, in the finals, they, they ended up playing Illinois. And Illinois at that time was undefeated, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was, that was a, a, a great win for the program at, Car- at Carolina and, and, of course, Roy Williams. So, and I think, and if I'm not mistaken, I think that was his first championship um, uh, when he was at Carolina. Crown Refs Podcast is brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. If you're looking for that clean, professional look on the court, there's only one way to do it. Log on to neattucks.com and order yours today. Neat Tucks and Crown Refs, serving the game. I just did the, the, a clinic down in uh, the CIAA um, for the Division Two. I'm still supervising that, and um, and they um, they were very. Uh, I can't tell you how many compliments we got because I, I treated that that clinic the same as the first day of camp. We got to talk about some things. We got to get everybody on the same page. We got to talk about you know how these coaches are you know running roughshod over you, and you now have a you know, the, the, the command of the game to, to, to kind of put your hand out and say, that's it, no more. And, you know, and, and so you're going to be supported by a supervisor that, that realizes that bench decorum is important. You know, you don't do that with the coaches and then the kids see that, then guess what? The game is going to be out of control. So, so yeah, we have, um, I, I'm, I'm still committed to, to, to doing this. Um, and, you know, it, it it's 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 been a, a little bit of a setback to not be working the Ivy League or Patriot League, but um, you know you, um, you 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 continue on and you know you, you keep doing it until you don't enjoy doing it no more. You think coaches in college basketball are given too much power? I I don't know if there's anything different about that because it's always been that way. You know, um, they're they're in command and control of the rules. All right, they they write the rules and for the for the rules committee, um, it's you know they are they're they're quick to tell you it's their livelihood that's on the line, um, and I beg to differ sometimes because you know we have referees that are out there trying their best. They go to summer camps, they work their butt off, um, and they're under scrutiny con- constantly. And if they they don't do well, they get fired. So it's it's. Um, I don't think the coaches sometimes appreciate the efforts that um, that referees uh, have to do in order to stay proficient and stay connected and, and stay employed, basically. Yeah, I know. That's just like that one way. I don't know. I, I just think we need to establish more of a culture of respect because that last comment you made where a coach says it's my livelihood, they're not being empathetic at all to our situation, not even – you know, giving us the respect to say that, you know, this is our life as well. 
No, and they don't understand what it is we do. They think we just show up and, you know, and, and, and do these games and, and don't really care about tomorrow. And, and I understand they have a, a, a huge responsibility for shepherding these young, young folks. The NCAA puts a lot of pressure on them to do things the right way. And, and, and then on top of that, they have to win because if they don't win, they're gone. Um, now, there's got to be an understanding from the officiating side as well that this is what they're up against. Okay, now, don't bring your laundry and dump, and dump it at my doorstep. Okay, because I, I don't have any patience for that. You know, let's do this thing together, understand where both of us are, and let's try to meet in the middle. Yeah, I don't even do laundry. God bless my beautiful wife. <laughs> From what I've seen so far, I think it's excellent that we're providing for officials uh, all the different um, alternative information to help them better navigate how to be the best referee they can be. I mean, there, I mean you had Bo Baraski on there, and you know, and he's um, part of the the. Um, the RefQuest. Um, there's a lot of other entities out there, but more information is better. And hopefully referees will avail themselves of, of entities like the Crown Ref Podcast, where you're getting information from a, a, a plethora of informed people, people that are important in the game, people that are uh, well-versed in trying to provide the information for people to be successful in this in this we call it avocation but it, it's so much a vocation now you talk about the NBA guys there it's a job for them it's a it's a job for all of us to try to be the best that we can in terms of officiating so crown refs the the, uh, the, um, the podcast provides this type of information and the platform is easy to use and certainly um, beneficial to all of us. And that's what we're looking for. Thanks for listening. Please go share this with a fellow official. Make sure you subscribe. And it would also mean the world to me if you left a review on Apple Podcast. Have a great day.